Once upon a time, there were four little rabbits. How old are you, Johnny? She asked. Sixteen. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. A wise old king once said, Of the making of books, there is no end. How true today. Of the overabundance of writing published each year, what's worth reading? The answer is simple. Read only the best. Come join the discussion on Just the Best Literature. Well, hello again, everyone. Thanks for listening in today. On our last podcast, Grant Turgeon and I finished the program with a discussion of the, I think, one of the most unique chapters in the book. That's chapter 40. And uh, I highly recommend you go back and, and read that and study it. It's uh, Melville wrote it like a, it's almost like a, you know, a musical. And uh, but he was obviously heavily influenced by, by uh, Shakespeare. Now for today's podcast, Grant and I want to get into chapter forty-one, and it's it's really I think it's really a very interesting chapter. And then we're we're away from the Shakespeare stuff now. We're back to. To, to Melville writing and the, the title of this chapter is Moby Dick and um, it, it's in, in some ways I, I think the way to look at this chapter is Ishmael is giving us the history of Moby Dick and Ahab and I think it's, it's you know he waited till like 40 chapters in uh, but, but this is I think what everybody who reads this book really wants to understand is what really happened between Ahab and Moby Dick, and so I think uh, you know this is really the the good, the, the good chapter. But I think what's interesting, and maybe I'll just start out with this, uh, Grant. Just let me read this. It says, "I Ishmael was one of that crew. My shouts had gone up with the rest. My oath had been welded with theirs, and stronger I shouted, and more did I hammer and clinch my oath." Because of the dread in my soul, a wild, mystical, sympathetical feeling was in me. Ahab's quenchless feud seemed mine. With greedy ears, I learned the history of that murderous monster against whom I and all the others had taken our oaths of violence and revenge. So, so after just discussing chapter 40 last time, uh, here Ishmael is sane. He's not drunk. And he's, what is he telling us? He's telling us, I was greatly affected by Ahab too. Mm. You know, and, and, and it's, what, what's interesting there is one of the students, when we were discussing this in class, brought out how often he uses the word soul in the book. The word soul is everywhere in the book. And obviously, uh, he probably believed in the immortality of the soul, and in which we know is not, is not a biblical concept at all. But, but here, Ishmael said he was one of the crew. He shouted along with everybody. Uh, you know, he, he took his oath with theirs. Uh, he said that he was stronger. He said, I shouted. And, uh, you know, he said, I did clinch my oath. And he said, because of the dread in my soul. And so it's like he was really, he came under the influence as well. And it's almost like, it, it, to me, it's like what what uh, Melville is saying is, is Ahab had such power that everyone felt his exact emotions. You know, this like Ahab's dread just it it now infested everybody. Wow. And so so here Ishmael said, "Look, there was dread in my soul," 
But notice he goes on to say, it was a wild, mystical, sympathetical feeling was in me. And he said, Ahab's quenchless feud seemed mine. So, so look at the power of that man. You know, I mean, the character. And so I don't know what, I don't know exactly where he was basing it from, you know, but, but it is, it is interesting. Well, yeah. And, and Ishmael's saying his oath became even more certain the longer time went on. Yeah. Like even, even though he knew that there was big danger involved, it's like for some reason against all reason, he actually became more serious about helping Ahab. So you can't really explain that. No. No, and the the thing is, I, I think it it, um, it it also I think it, it this might seem a little weird, but I also think it gives us insight into what was really going on inside Ahab. You know, it's like so if you look at it like what you just said, Ishmael understood the danger. Ahab had to too. You know, and you know some people are crazy enough to think well. I'll go into this, and it's it's like it's a, it's a way to commit suicide, <laughs> you know. And you just wonder if if Ahab isn't just so distraught that he doesn't care if he dies or not, you know. It, it may actually uh, relieve him from all of his suffering, you know. Yeah, as long as he thinks he has maybe a tiny chance to kill Moby Dick. Yeah. But if he doesn't, like you said, he'll get relief from right. dying anyway. But it's it's just not the best of choices to get eaten by a whale or to kill the whale and still be miserable. I mean, he, he's clearly not going to come out of this rage, even if he does win. No. So there's no good option here for Ahab. Yeah. So, uh, the, the thing I think it's, that's, that's really interesting about you know, this chapter is that it, we, we have to understand that that Ahab was already in a fight with the whale. He tried to kill him with a knife. <laughs> How do you kill a whale with a knife? <laughs> yeah, that's what it says. Like he lunged at the whale while he was on his ship and he had like, what, a six inch blade? Yeah. To, to fight this massive beast. <laughs> massive beast. Like that, that blade's not even going to get anywhere close to any of the vital organs to kill the whale, you'd think. Yeah. No, no. I mean, there's, we got to fight through all that blubber. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so, but it's it's interesting. Um, uh, so, so we know that Ishmael is now drawn into Ahab's circle, and uh, he has now he has this dread in his soul. But but he now he he obviously had to research or in, in his mind find out more about the, you know the history, and he he really starts. This is really a chapter of history for for uh, for Moby. And uh, that's why I titled the program Introducing Moby Dick. You know, so we really get to learn about him. It says, For some time past, though at intervals only, the unaccompanied, secluded white whale had haunted those uncivilized seas most frequently, most frequented by the sperm whale fishermen. So it, it seems like to me, and I think I remember this from the beginning of the book, because sometimes it's, uh, you know, it's so long. You do, and there's so many different things thrown at you. But I guess there was a certain whaling just for sperm whales and and so so this is where the history really began it says but not all of them knew of his existence only a few of them comparatively and had knowingly seen him while the number who as yet had actually had knowingly given battle to him was small indeed so so in other words it all started out 
that the the sperm whale fishermen had contact with Moby, but and only a few of them actually battled with them. And so so he goes on to say in a little bit that that the that the the sperm whale fishing fishery was not as well organized. So there was a lot of ships out there, but they didn't communicate with each other. You know, we had the GAMs. We talked about the GAMs before, where they would, you know, the, uh, uh, and I could be confusing this with class, but the GAMs, they would, the, these these uh, ships would meet, they get together, and the crew would all intermingle, and they would kind of stop sailing for a while. But but they that's how they would pass news along. And he goes on, this is still on the, this uh, page 194 is where we are. He said, uh, he says, for owing to the large number of whale cruisers, the disorderly way they were sprinkled over the entire watery circumference, many of them eventually pushing their quest along solitary latitudes so as seldom or never for a whole 12 month or more on a stretch to encounter a single news telling sail of any sort. So they, they weren't getting a lot of news about you know, Moby Dick. It says the inordinate length of each separate voyage, the irregularity of the times of sailing from home, all of these with other circumstances, direct and indirect, long obstructed the spread through the whole worldwide whaling fleet of the special individualized tidings concerning Moby Dick. So, so it, it's, it's almost like Moby Dick could conceal himself for a while. He was out there you know, it's almost like the devil. If you really think about it, it's like the devil really works hard to conceal himself. And how does he appear? He appears as an angel of light, yeah. right? Or he's white, <laughs> you know? So, so anyway, it was hardly to be doubted that several vessels reported to have encountered at such and such a time or in such and such a meridian, a sperm well of uncommon magnitude and malignity. And so... So there was great ferocity in Moby Dick. I mean, this, in, in some ways, I think Melville is building the case that Moby Dick is possessed. Even Moby Dick, you know, is possessed by demons. And we actually know from the Bible that the demons can go into animals. And uh, if you remember, you know, the whole scene with Christ, you know, they, they said, you know, what, what do you have to do with us? Cast us into the the herd of pigs or the flock of pigs or whatever they call them. And then they ran off the coast because they killed themselves, mm. you know. So so animals can be possessed by demons. And uh, so, so, so anyway, he says, he goes up to say, I say that the hole in question must have been no other than Moby Dick. So, so in some ways, what, what Ishmael is putting us all together is finally some people were starting to talk about it and then the, the only whale that they really encountered, and I remember all of the harpooners had encountered them, it's the same whale. And he said, it's got to be Moby Dick. He says, yet as of late, the sperm whale fishery had been marked by various and not infrequent instances of great ferocity, cunning, and malice in the monster attacked. Therefore it was that those who by accident ignorantly gave battle to Moby Dick such hunters, perhaps, for the most part, were content to ascribe the peculiar terror he bred, more as it were, to the perils of the sperm whale fishery at large, than to the individual cause. And so, so essentially, <clears throat> what he's he's kind of countering here a little bit is Ahab feels this personal thing with Moby Dick, and 
it insinuates that Moby Dick has this personal thing with Ahab. Right. And and he's kind of saying, well, I don't know if we could say that, you know. Uh, he says, and as for those previously hearing of the white whale, by chance caught sight of him, in the beginning of the thing, they had every one of them almost as boldly and fiercely lowered for him, as for any other whale of that species. But at length, and such calamities did ensue in these assaults, not restricted to sprained wrists and ankles broken limbs or devouring amputations but fatal to the last degree of fatality wow (laughs) (laughs) and so so what he's saying is look this whale he's out to kill i mean he's he's going to kill human beings he's not out to just to bite off a leg right it seems like these these sailors eventually realized there was one whale who was bigger and meaner than all the rest (laughs) And they, they eventually put it together that even if they were on different ships, they were probably all encountering the same one. Right. So, it yeah, it's like this whale is particularly malicious, and he he actually is as hateful toward the men as a, an enemy soldier would be. It's yeah. like he's a human with the amount of hatred that he could put toward those sailors. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and, and I, I think the... Uh, I mean, for all of you out there listening, I think uh, you would really enjoy uh, Philbrick's book on the Essex. And if you could see that movie, In the Heart of the Sea, that would give you, I mean, they did a great job of showing how Moby Dick was just vicious and really out to get them. And they, and he destroyed their boat and then he, he went after them in their rowboats, you know, it's crazy. But anyway, it gives you a good view of it. And I do show that film in my class so they get the feeling of what it would be like to be on a whale ship and things like that. Um, he goes on to say there, he says, nor did wild rumors of all sorts fail to exaggerate and still the more horrify the true histories of these deadly encounters. For not only do fabulous rumors naturally grow out of the very body of all surprising terrible events, the smitten tree gives birth to its fungi, but in maritime life, the far more uh, than in that of terra firma, wild rumors abound wherever there is any adequate reality for them to cling to. So he's saying, look, um, there's this history. We have to accept some of it could be rumor. That's what he's basically saying there. And he said, because uh, how many of whale ships, they talked about mermaids and, you know, mermen. And <laughs> that's, of course, that takes us back to the dream. Yeah, he says, he <laughs> says like, truth and fiction tend to stick together. <laughs> right. And sometimes they're hard to separate where you can actually discern which is which. So you could have someone who is uh, sailing on one of these ships and, and might just panic in the moment and see something a hundred times bigger than it actually was, right, right. or someone who just wanted to have the best story right. and, and could do it on purpose. There are a lot of reasons why a lie might get attached to the truth. Yeah, my, my grandchildren have discovered that I'm a great storyteller, and I really, <laughs> I really expand on it. <laughs> I had been believing their grandmother was 10 years older than I was for, <laughs> for years. And then my oldest granddaughter finally said, Granddad, I'm really mad at you. And I said, why? I said, because you made me believe grandma was 10 years older than you. <laughs> so, so, How does she feel about that, <laughs> your wife? <laughs> oh, she laughs. She laughs it off. She knows. So now I'm telling everybody she's younger than I am. So then she laughs at that, too. Now it's evening out. Yeah, it's evening out. So I'm trying to be nice. Anyway. Um, 
But if we just skip over to page 196, and again, everybody out there, you're going to have to read the whole chapter yourself. We can never get through this uh, this chapter in just one one program. This one might actually be my favorite one yet because oh, yeah. it gives so much detail about Moby Dick, the actual uh, whale. Yeah. You know, yes. not just That's not right. just uh, some details leading up to it, but now we actually realize what the whale is really like. Yeah, and he's a he's a hateful beast. It seems like <laughs> I like that. That's a good phrase. You hateful beast. <laughs> I can say that to my, my son-in-law's dog. <laughs> you hateful beast. All right, then he goes on. And this is page 196. We'll just clip over there for a minute. It says, no wonder then that, this is the second paragraph down. No wonder then that ever-gathering volume from the mere transit over the widest watery spaces, the outflow rumors of the white well did, in the end, incorporate with themselves all manner of morbid hints and have formed fetal suggestions of supernatural agencies which eventually invested Moby Dick with new terrors unborrowed from anything that visibly appears. So that in many cases such a panic did he finally strike that few who do, who by those rumors at least had heard of the white whale, few of those hunters were willing to encounter the perils of his jaw. So essentially that paragraph is saying is that, well, there could be, you know, people are really... Uh, blowing things up, and this is there's an evil spirit there. But I think he's also saying there probably is an evil spirit there, and that he has spiritual power. So it's like beyond the physical realm, the right. power he possesses. Right. So, like it says, <laughs> not very many hunters are willing to encounter the perils of his jaw after they hear stories like that, where this thing can be all places at once and do anything at once right and it's beyond physical power yeah not many people are going to want to fight that thing yeah he says at the bottom of that page it says and as if they now tested the reality of his might had in former legendary times thrown a shadow before we find some book naturalists like olassen and Paulson declaring the sperm whale not only to be a consternation to every other creature in the sea but also to be incredibly ferocious as continually to be a thirst for human blood. <laughs> so, so now he throws in, now these are, these Olassen and Paulson were actual naturalists at the time. So he's throwing their names in, and there had to be some, some discussion of um, the, the sperm whale uh, was probably the most vicious. And uh, if we go over to page 197. Is that, is that true about these whales, that they want human blood particularly? I don't. I don't know if that's true. I think that's yeah. part of the story. Okay, but that's what I thought. I mean, how would they, how would they know about human blood unless they smelled it or something? You right. Know, I don't know. So that's that's a good question. We could look up. Maybe there have been some tests in the time since to yeah. determine that. I doubt it would care more about one type of blood than another, though. I yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know there are some whales that are vicious. I mean, they're killer whales. That's yeah. why they're called killer whales. And uh, one time. You know, I was up in Alaska for a church meeting, and uh, the Roth took me out on the skiff. And there was a whale right next to us, and that guy lifted his tail. I never saw anything so big in my life. <laughs> and I said, uh, I'm ready to get out of here, because <laughs> we were in his little skiff. Anyway, uh, page 197, that's what Grant was just talking about. This whale could be everywhere. Uh, down towards the end, bottom of the page, it says, one of the wild suggestions referred to uh, 
as at last coming to link with the white whale in the minds of the superstitiously inclined was the unearthly conceit that Moby Dick was ubiquitous and that he had actually been encountered in opposite latitudes and one at the same instant of time. <laughs> so, so obviously that's not possible for a physical whale. And it was talking about how there, there might be some sort of underwater channels from one end of the earth to the other that would make him maybe be able to travel back and forth a lot faster than someone on the surface could. So like a place on earth that could be a barrier for a ship would not stop the whale from, from moving very quickly to where it wanted to go. So it's like, there might be these secret passageways underwater. And and the thing is, I agree. I, I don't think we know all that yet. Yeah. I mean, we've studied everything in outer space. We've studied everything above the sea, but I don't think we know the pathways that, that could be there. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, I don't think we know everything. That is fascinating. You just wonder how fast a whale could possibly swim from side to side because they're acting like it would only take a few days to travel through. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's amazing. You know, I I think there's a lot we don't know about this planet yet. It says, uh, nor credulous as such minds must have been, as was the conceit altogether with some faint show of superstitious probability. For as the secrets of the currents and the seas have never yet been divulged, even to the most erudite research, so the hidden ways of the sperm well when beneath the surface remain in a great part unaccountable to his pursuers, and from time to time have originated the most curious and contradictory speculation regarding. And I think I think Melville is really speaking there. And uh, you know, it was uh, Ben Franklin that discovered the, you know, the one of the lanes of the sea, and. Uh, uh, you know, there's there could be other things. I mean, uh, you know, if, if you look at, even if you look at the flood, the biblical flood, what you know, the rain certainly contributed to the flood, but also it says the deeps broke up and just let the water, so there could be water everywhere underneath the sea that we don't know about. And it, yet that, that all contributed to the flood. It wasn't right. just the rain. Yeah, that's so fascinating to think about. Yeah. Yeah. So he goes on there to talk about some Arctic explorers. Um, you know, um, uh, this uh, Scoresby, he was the inventor of the the, uh, the crow's nest, you know, up on the top of the ship and, and all that. So, so he's talking about some things there. And I think this is where I think Melville excels because he includes things that people would have probably already read about. And so it just makes the book even more more realistic. Then, uh, also in this chapter, he says, uh, forced into familiarity then with such prodigies as these, and knowing that after repeated intrepid results, the white whale had escaped alive, it cannot be much matter of surprise that some whalemen should go still further in their superstitions, declaring Moby Dick not only ubiquitous, but he was immortal. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the rumors just keep getting more and more absurd. <laughs> He's all places at once, and now... He can't die. He literally could not die. Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's uh, it's uh, it's fascinating. But then, if you remember, Moby Dick has three harpoons still stuck in his flesh somewhere. All right, if we just skip over there. Well, actually, yeah, it says there with those harpoons being stuck in him, if one of those harpoons ever did actually make him bleed, it would just be like an illusion because that whale can't bleed. He can't bleed. That, that whale's right. invincible. So <laughs> He's invincible it, it, and immortal. Be seeing things. <laughs> it, it wouldn't be actual blood there. We'd be seeing it. Yeah. 
Um, it, it goes on then. Uh, this, uh, there's a lot. There's a lot to unpack here. Um, but uh, I, I want to get to his madness. But uh, uh, it says the rest of his body was so streaked. This is page 199, and spotted and marbled with that same shrouded hue that in the end he had gained his distinctive appellation of the white whale, a name indeed literally justified by his vivid aspect when when seen gliding at high noon through the dark blue sea leaving a milky wake of creamy foam all spangled with gold gleamings. So so he even had this magical effect on the water. <laughs> gold gold came out when he was around. Uh, he, he, he goes now down to start talking about how you know, Moby Dick and Ahab met. It says, his three boats stove around him and oars and men both whirling. The eddies, one captain seizing the li- line knife from his broken prow had dashed at the whale as an Arkansas duelist at his foe, blindly seeking with a cinch's blade to reach the fathom deep of the whale. The captain was Ahab. And then it was that suddenly, sweeping his sickle-shaped lower jaw beneath him, Moby Dick had reaped away Abraham's, Abahab's, not Abraham, Ahab's leg as a mower of blade grass in the field. No turban Turk, no hired Venetian or Malay could have smote him with more seeming malice. Small reason was there no doubt that, that that ever their most fatal encounter, Ahab had cherished a wild vindictiveness against the whale. All the more had cherished, uh, excuse me, all the more fell for that in his frantic morbidness at the last came to identify him. Not only all his bodily woes, but his intellectual and spiritual exasperations. The white whale swam before him as the monomaniac incarnation of the most malicious agencies which some deep men feel eating in them till they are left living with only half a heart and half a lung. And so, so uh, it, it's the white whale was a monomaniac. And uh, he goes down and he talks about, um, he even goes down and talks about Adam. He says, um, Ahab were, were visibly personified and prickly and practically assailable in Moby Dick. He piled upon the whale's white hump the sum of all general rage and hate felt by his whole race from Adam down. And then, if his chest had been a mortar, he burst not his heart's shell upon it. So, so, so he's saying that after what the whale did to him, Ahab had all the anger from Adam down. He sees all the evil in the world piled yeah. up in Moby Dick. Yeah, all of it, all of it. Um, I, also, I also sort of wonder if maybe Ahab had a little bit of mental instability even before losing his leg. Just the fact that he'd think it was a good idea to attack a whale with a six-inch blade. <laughs> like, was that was that panic, or did he not have any other weapons available, or did he actually think he was powerful enough to kill a whale with that? Yeah. It just it just made me wonder a little bit. It's like if you're out in the woods camping and a bear comes at you, you can't get it with a switchblade. Right. <laughs> Something a little bit bigger. It could, it, could chew your, it could chew your head <laughs> off before you get the knife in far enough. Right. Yeah. So so anyway, um, but but anyway, he, this is where I, I think all of you out there, you really need to read this. It says, it is not probable that his monomania in him took it instant rise at the precise time of his bodily dismemberment. Then in darting at the monster knife in hand, he had, he had but given loose to a sudden passionate corporal animosity, and when he received the stroke that tore him, he probably felt the agonizing bodily laceration, but nothing more. And so, so he's saying, man, you get your leg bit off, it just, it's going to hurt. 
Yeah, so. <laughs> so that's the thing. He was dealing with the pain at first, and then it says once he was on the trip back home and the and the pain really set in and he realized what happened, that's when he started to lose his mind. Right. So it wasn't like at the very instant he lost his leg because no. obviously you're, you're trying to save your life at that point. But then you get time to reflect on that long trip home and you realize you have you have this beast out there that you really hate now and you need revenge that's right that's right yeah and so so remember there was no medical doctors right there either so no one could even how'd they even get it sealed so it doesn't keep bleeding you know yeah the the pain of a missing limb it's hard to even picture that no and they know that you you feel that limb is there i've talked to I've talked to a few fellows that have lost their legs, and they said that they always feel their leg is there, and it's not there. Uh, He goes on then on page 201, it really talks about, uh, 201 to 203, it really um, gives you a summary of of Ahab going mad. And uh, I think it's really, really, really worth reading. But it says, uh, middle of that page says, Ahab in his hidden self raved on. Human madness is often a cunning and most feline thing. When you think it fled, it may have but become transfigured into some still subtler form. Ahab's full lunacy subsided not, but deepingly contracted like the abated, unabated Hudson when the noble Northman flows narrowly. So he's comparing it to like, a, you know, the, the hatred just kept flowing into him and it got stronger and stronger. And yet he tricked everybody. They all thought that his hatred was gone and that he had res- had gotten back some of his mental stability, but he really hadn't. Yeah. He said, Ahab to that one end did now possess a thousandfold more potency than ever he had sanely brought to bear upon any one reasonable object. <laughs> so, so, so anyway. Well, on the ship, they had to strap him down because yeah. he was raving and flailing around. That's where they knew he was angry and crazy. But once he calmed down, they thought that he wasn't mad inside anymore, and they yeah. were very wrong about that. Right, right. Well, anyway, that's that's really great. Well, that's all the time we have for today's program. On our next program, Grant and I will begin uh, discussing uh, Chapter 42, The Whiteness of the Whale. It's a really good chapter. And then we'll try and keep going on through chapters 46 and 48. So you can buy Moby Dick at Amazon.com. You may be also able to find a good used copy at abebooks.com. You may also be able to find a copy in your local bookstore. And of course, you can always check your local library. So please write me any comments you may have to jbl at pcog.org. You can follow JBL on Twitter at jbliterature1. You can also follow JBL on Facebook. Simply search for just the best literature. So until next time, keep reading. You've been listening to Just the Best Literature on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG. Streaming online at kpcg.fm and thetrumpet.com.